Hey everyone, welcome to the Everyday Mulemanship Podcast. Uh, it's been a little while. We've been busy. Life has been just going, going, going. And uh, it's been a few weeks since we've published a podcast for for y'all. So I thought I'd better get on here today and and uh, try to get caught up on some of these questions and also uh, fill you guys in on what's been going on lately. We've We've had a few great clinics uh, the past few weeks and a lot of good stuff to talk about. So uh, I want to kick it off, though, by thanking our amazing sponsors. We have some great folks that help us out, that they get behind us in this podcast and support us, and we're so grateful for them. We got uh, Western Mule Magazine. I've been writing for them for quite a few years now. I hope you guys uh, enjoy those articles. I don't get a lot of feedback on magazine articles actually so if any of you out there read my articles i'd love to know what you think about them uh tell me what you think tell me how they are uh tell me what you'd like me to write about um i always i'm always open to topics and ideas so let me know i also want to thank roman homes uh ben lewis does a great job building these wall tents Uh, i love the design they're amazing and very durable great tents so if you're looking for a good wall tent you need to look up roman homes go to romanhomes.com and uh, they'll get you hooked up for sure tell ben i sent you i also want to thank colt salary colt nearing uh, out of star valley wyoming builds fantastic saddles i love my saddle that he built me i ride in it almost six days a week most weeks and great saddle tough saddle uh, this year branded calves with it and you know took took that rope burn pretty good and uh, it's a great saddle so look uh, if you if you're interested in a saddle from colt you can find him on facebook look up colt saddlery um, fantastic man good job also want to thank mules and more magazine another great sponsor and another fantastic magazine Corey Daniels has done a great job uh, designing that magazine and and uh, puts together a fantastic product. So be sure to go to mulesandmore.com to check them out. So uh, we appreciate all our sponsors for sure. Well, uh, it's been a long day already. Um, we left John Day, Oregon about 6 a.m. and... Um, drove up here to spokane washington we're getting ready to do a clinic here this week we got a four-day clinic coming up been coming up to the spokane area for i don't know now there's maybe uh five five or six years we've been coming up here to this area uh a great group of people come here so you know and i really love the clinics where we have a a, a kind of a, a a main group of people that continue to gather and come back year after year, continue to work on their mulemanship and try to be better every year. And this is one of those places. Um, so I'm really excited for this clinic. It's going to be great. But we just finished up in John Day, Oregon, and talk about some success. It was it was one of my highlight clinics of the year so far, for sure. So many great things I want to talk about. So I'll try to I'll try to keep things lined out for you guys and, and try to help you see what 
see what I saw and experience what I experienced this past week in Oregon. Highlight for sure, above all, uh, was a, a a wonderful woman by the end of, by the name of Angel Chrisup, and she brought her colt named Pearl. This young colt. This was, you know, when she got there, it was about her fifth ride. She said on this colt, and um, and she she just did a wonderful job. But the point that I really want to hit on with with her little colt there and how she handled it was. On day three, so Saturday in John Day, Oregon, we were working on transitions, and it was time in the Mulemanship 1 class to work on a lope. And um, I called on Angel, and no hesitation, she went ahead and asked her horse to pick up a lope, and oh my gosh, did Pearl pick up a lope, that horse. That horse was like a rocket booster, just flew out of there, hit, hit a absolute gallop immediately. And, you know, a lot of people, uh, and a lot of you guys that have listened have heard me talk about transitions for a long time now, and, and it seems to be a topic that continues to come up, and I guess I'll keep talking about it until people actually begin to work at it and do, do better at it, you know, but um, Angel handled this cult exactly how she should. What I was going to say is most people... When when a colt like this would burst off like that and have a huge surge of energy, most people would panic a little bit, and they'd go into a little bit of survival mode. And you can't really blame them, especially if they're rookies or if they're new or you know novice riders. Um, you know maybe they haven't been riding very long. But I've seen a lot of people that have been riding their whole lives, maybe thirty, forty, fifty years, that will just shut down and freeze up when an animal will take off like that. Um, and you don't want to do that. You don't want to freeze up. You don't want to get tight. That's going to trouble the animal, but it's also going to absolutely ruin your balance and your risk of coming off that animal or something happening really elevates when you freeze up if they take off like that. But Angel did just the opposite. She pushed those reins forward. She looked where she wanted her horse to go. And like I've said many times in the clinics, that horse, after just a few moments, um, just a few moments was, was done. It was done with that big surge, and it just lined out, had a nice little gallop. And I had her keep going just a little while until the horse really come down and was just loping around there nice. And then she, she asked it to slow down, and it slowed right down for her. Um, that was the first round. And then we went through everybody else she walked a little while and we worked on it the other way and um it was it was kind of the same story not near as big of a surge the second round not near as surprising to her she kind of knew it might come and uh you know that horse took off again but the surge was shorter didn't last as long and again angel just rode it perfectly and i was trying to tell the group that that was that was the absolute perfect example of how to handle something with a big burst of energy when it's taken off like that. That was absolutely just just perfect. And so um, good job, Angel. If you're out there, you know, listening to this, I hope I hope I made it clear that you did a great job on that Colt Pearl. Um we had another little transition uh moment that I thought it would be good to share with you guys. Also, uh, 
there's a woman by the name of Lori um, that brought her horse, uh, Sierra. The horse's name was Sierra, and um, did a did a great job. Um, you know, all week. You know, Lori had a lot of try. Um, she she signed up for both classes. She signed up for mulemanship one and mulemanship two, and this horse uh, was was mostly at the colt starting and mulemanship one level for sure. So Lori was really pushing it coming into mulemanship two. But you know, um, she tried and and uh, you know she just did the best that she could, and I appreciate her for doing that. But one of the things that I tried to explain to her. Um, one of the days we were working there was, you know, this, this horse needs to learn how to find comfort in the transition. So basically what would happen was she would get this horse either trotting or loping and the horse would go way up and it'd get, it'd stay on high. And it was almost like, um, Lori put the horse on a little bit of a survival mode, a little bit of a, a flight survival mode where the horse kind of checks out. I think there's a little bit of a, you know, my observation in a lot of these horses and mules is sometimes if they get running off like that, they're they're so maybe so far into the flight zone that they almost actually freeze up in the flight. I don't know if that makes sense to any of you, but they freeze in the flight to where nothing is going to tune them down or, or, or bring them down or... Um, you know, help them settle at all. And I think they need to learn to, uh, you know, when you're, when you're working through, through these pieces, you know, these transition pieces, you know, walk, trot and lope, when you get into the higher speed, you know, your horse, your mule needs to learn how to find comfort in that transition, uh, be able to, um, self-regulate and kind of come down in the transition. I was trying to explain this to everybody on Saturday, and I hope I did a good enough job of it. But, um, you know, this particular horse would get going fast and just absolutely tune the rider out. Now, after I talked to Lori and learned a little bit more about the horse, the horse had been lunged extensively. And, you know, I've talked about lunging many times before. Yeah, I believe it's a absolute brainless exercise. I mean, the best that you're going to get out of lunging is maybe physical exercise for the animal. That's maybe the best thing you're going to get out of it. But it's not enough thinking. And um, Sky shared a, an, an example with me. Um, she showed me a little video of, of a dog trainer talking about playing fetch with the dog and it's not a good idea just to throw the ball and have it bring them back throw the ball have it bring them back because it's not enough thinking the dog doesn't do enough thinking in it and it gets just too rhythmic in in the physical motion and it's kind of a brainless deal you, you know you need to do more thinking things you need to be able to tell the dog to sit and stay while you throw the ball and then bring it back and have them you know, do something else, lay down, shake, whatever. The trainer went on with the different things you could do with a dog, but it was, I could really relate it to the mules and the horses with the lunging. Lunging is absolute brainless work. I mean, they don't think in it. Um, and this horse that I'm talking about, 
of lorries had been lunged extensively, I was told. And that's absolutely going to affect, you know, how the transition goes in the saddle. You know, if you want to be tuned out when you're working on walk, trot, lope in the saddle, have them tune you out when you're lunging them in the round pen or something. So it has to be more thinking. It has to be more of a thinking endeavor. And that's what I was trying to do with this horse was help Lori be able to help the horse be able to come down, self-regulate in that move, relax in the move, and think a little bit more about Lori and the cues that Lori is offering. Sometimes the these mules and horses get to tuning you guys out. You'll be up there, you'll want to slow down, and your seat means nothing, your intention means nothing. And if we want our seat to mean something, our intention to mean something, we've got to practice this stuff more often. We've got to practice those transitions more often. It's the transition that's the key. It's the change in the speed that makes all the difference. And so when you're at home practicing, try your best, uh, or, or not even at home, I mean anywhere, out on the trail, following a bunch of cows, whatever. Um, practice different speed controls and changing the speed, not necessarily holding that speed for a long time, but change that speed more often, shift up and shift down, and it will get your animal thinking and paying attention to you. You know, another part of this deal, uh, particularly on the slowdown, um, it seemed like we had a few that we, we really need to work on the slowdown uh, this past weekend in Oregon. You know, you, you got to get them ready to slow down. It's like I've talked to in the past about getting one ready to stop. You got to get it ready to slow down. So sometimes to get it ready to slow down, you might have to do a little bit more. So in order to get my animal maybe willing to slow down to the trot, I might have to lope a few circles. Um, in order to get him to slow down to the walk, I might have to trot a few circles, trot a few figure eights, uh, whatever. Maybe you're out on the trail. Maybe to maybe you got one that's got a lot of energy, and you might have to ride up that hill for a little while. You might have to work on your slowing down transitions. You might have to work on that part of your checklist uh, later on in your ride. Maybe after you've ridden for an hour or two, then work on the slowdown. If we come out and we just start our ride and we immediately start working on the slowdown, it's probably going to be more of a forced deal probably going to be more of a deal where we have to kind of make the animal slow down and it's not really something they're finding on their own. Remember, we want them to think. I want my mule to think and pay attention and make their own choices. I don't want to have to make my mule do everything all the time. So get them ready to do whatever it is you want them to do. Uh, one thing I teach as often as I can in the clinics is to focus on, you know, making it the mule's idea. And also don't ask the animal to do anything that you aren't pretty positive they're going to be able to do. I don't ask my mule to do anything that I'm not pretty certain they can do. You know, I'm not, I, I want them to understand. That's my goal. I want them to understand. I want them to be confident in the questions I ask. And if you ask questions that way, your mule will always know that, hey, you know, if, if, if you ask me the question, I know I can do it because you don't ask me to do anything I can't do. 
And for my mule, I make sure there's always an answer. So because there's always an answer, I'm very purposeful in everything that I ask. There, there's Whenever I pick up on my rein, whenever I apply my leg or, or any of that, there is a reason for it. There is an answer to that movement. I want my mule to do something because of what I did. I want there to be some kind of a response. So as you're working through those transitions and things like that, you, you got to dial that stuff in and you got to make sure your mule is ready for it. So um, the other thing that I kind of noticed this last weekend in John Day, Oregon was, and, and this comes up whenever I do clinics and I don't offer a foundation class at the clinic. Um, I, I noticed that it's pretty detrimental. I need to, uh, you know, I wish I could offer the foundation class everywhere, you know, and I probably should because oftentimes in the mealmanship one, if I don't have a foundation class there, there's a lot of people that really should be doing more groundwork. And, um, you know, and I was telling everybody there this weekend, you know, we, you know, because a lot of them were riding mules that were, that were maybe older. They're not like young mules. They're not colts necessarily. Um, the majority of the people had mules that were that were mature. You know, but just because they're physically mature and they're older doesn't mean we can't be doing the groundwork. You know, when they're when they're young, a lot of people are willing to do the groundwork in the colt starting phases, especially because they don't want to get bucked off. They don't want to have any drama. They don't want to have any problems. So, you know, that phase, it's, it makes sense to do some groundwork because they want to stay safe. But it's as the mule gets older that people start to fade because they kind of got some trust in the animal and they kind of got some confidence. And, you know, they know the animal's not going to buck them off anymore. And that's fine and, and great. But what I see happening a lot is we haven't done a good enough job building that foundation to to truly get the animal broke to lead to where you know you can just point that rein and it means something you know you don't have to pull on them and i realize that most people just really aren't doing enough to get that mule truly broke to lead off of that slack rein they might get them broke to 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 lead and and, and turn and stuff by making contact but that slack rein just doesn't have enough meaning. So if you're out there thinking, well, should I do my groundwork or not? I recommend you do it and keep building that feel that we're chasing. Build that, you know, build that connection. And, and I'm not saying you need to spend hours and hours at the groundwork. You know, some, if, if any of you, you know, do the video library that we have, um, you know, we got over 300 something videos on there now, but one of the videos is, uh, is pretty short and it just shows how long I take to do the groundwork on one of my uh, one of my mules that's further along and um, it's something like you know the actual groundwork time in the video is like 26 seconds that's all it takes just to check on things so I'm not saying you got to sit out there for hours and do your groundwork forever but check on that stuff build that connection on the ground um, there's something about the groundwork that kind of hones the mule in with you a little bit better at times than directly working from the saddle. So if you're considering, you know, should I do groundwork or not, 
I recommend that you do. So, you know, one of the funnest things that uh, that we do at the John Day Oregon Clinic, and it's it's a it's been a tradition for the last five six years that we've been there, is a game called Mule Shoe Pooper Pitch. <laughs> and basically, what it is is uh, you set up a a portable toilet type thing, um, and uh, you just you try to throw mule shoes and and make it, uh, you know, make it between the seat there, and it's it's a great time. And if any of my friends that came to the John Day Clinic are listening, I just want to thank you guys for uh, such a fantastic potluck dinner. And fun playing that mule shoe pooper pitch, um, just just what a great time, you know. There there are a lot of wonderful people there, and it, it's fun to get to know people. Um, but what I want to bring up about the the potluck particularly is, it's interesting how similar the mules are to the people that own them and that ride them and that work them. You know, as I got to know some of the people at the at the potluck and got to visiting with them and talking with them, you know, th- their mules are often pretty similar to, to them. And uh, there's something about that, you know. There's something about that. But your mule, either either you take on your mule's personality or your mule takes on you. I think it's the latter for sure. Is, is Your mule will begin to reflect you as a person. And I heard a, uh, I heard a quote just the other day, um, uh, that's something like like this, uh, you know, a, a bad tempered, a bad tempered man never made a good tempered horse, and it's so true, you know, our the, the way we are, uh, our demeanor, um, just the type of person we are, it will be reflected in the animals that we are producing, the animals that we're making, the the animals that we're riding. It it's it shows in our in our dog sometimes it shows in our our horses and our mules and and uh, children for sure um so it's it's just interesting and and maybe some of you that ride with bigger groups maybe you'll start paying attention to that just see how the okay what type of person is that and what type of animal do they have what what's going on there with their with their animal it's kind of fun to see that um but as I was thinking about that, you know, and I watched their mules the next day, um, you know, some of these folks just work so hard and, and, and it's fun to see their mules work hard for them. Uh, there's a correlation in a lot of things. These people with a great work ethic, they might not be the, the handiest. They might not be, uh, you know, the, the, the best buckaroo, the best cowboy, the best vaquero, the best Californio whatever they're trying to be they might not be the best one but their work ethic seems to be contagious it seems that their animals kind of bring on the same thing for them really try for them um it's interesting noticing the people that are late um and i've said this many times uh, you know there's there's some kind of correlation there i see a lot that the the people that are late seem to have trouble with their animals um and it's kind of it's kind of interesting how that how that goes uh and and I've 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 noticed that just about every clinic if somebody's late 
I don't know if it's the stress that, that because they're late that they come with or if it's just kind of that not caring attitude. I, I don't know what it is, but I see a correlation there. Um, so I guess the moral of the story on that one is try to be be the type of person, uh, you know, that, that be practice and and do the things that you want your meal to practice to do the the qualities the you know those attributes you know that you want your meal to be be that and a lot of you have heard me talk about my four favorite words in mulemanship my four favorite words are soft centered accurate and punctual soft centered accurate and punctual and you know I've I've talked often about how I want my mule to, you know, all the moves, all the moves and all the maneuvers that I'm ever going to ask my mule. I want each maneuver to fit that definition of, of those four words. I want every move to be soft, centered, accurate, and punctual. But I've learned that if we want that to if we want that to apply to the animal, uh, we kind of have to do the same thing we have to fit that definition ourselves yeah it's really interesting so those are a few highlights from the clinic in john day you know we had some some fantastic clinics in uh, a few other places um you know we've been to shoot we've been to north carolina tennessee had a clinic in tropic utah had a clinic in dunnigan california i haven't done um debriefs on all these clinics but they've been fantastic you know north carolina was in conjunction with mule days at leatherwood and what a hard-working group of people you know i love those folks out there um we get a very similar group the same group kind of comes to quite a few of the east coast clinics there and i mean you won't find a group of folks that works harder than them i mean all of them you know connie jane Christina, Christy, Judy, uh, you know, they're all just, there's a bunch of them out there. Shannon and, and uh, you know, Mary, it's, I know they all listen. And anyways, you guys are just fantastic. Uh, had a great time. You know, one thing I missed, though, going to a bunch of these clinics uh, um, was it, I had to go by myself. And gosh, I just, I, uh, I sure I'm grateful for these people that kind of, take care of me when I'm when I'm when I'm flying and going by myself guys had to stay home um the last uh, a bunch of these clinics and and uh, boy it's tough not having her um with me you know on a lot of these deals that you know last week she was able to come to John Day with me and the girls came you know and oh my gosh I I'm so grateful for my family but I'm also grateful for the people that fill in the gaps you know when I'm gone and and, uh, uh, you know, in North Carolina, I definitely did not go hungry in North Carolina. That's for sure. All those folks took care of me and fed me well. And we had a great time and made a lot of progress there. Um, we, we got a lot of progress done even in the mulemanship one class. We got a little further than a little further than we usually do in the mulemanship one, because a lot of these people have ridden with me many times. And that's one of my favorite things is when these people ride with me continually, um, it's not always the same class. You know, basically, mulemanship one starts at the beginning of the checklist in the saddle. 
and we go as far as we can in the time that we have. Mulemanship 2 starts in the middle of the checklist uh, because I kind of expect you to have the first few things going. So it starts in the middle of the checklist and we build from there. And uh, so it just kind of depends on what the people come with, where their level's at, is how far we get. But we got pretty far in North Carolina there. It was a great time. And I'm so, so excited to go back. If you guys haven't been to Mule Days at Leatherwood in Ferguson, North Carolina, you got to go. I mean, big shout out to Leatherwood Mountain Resort there for having us and to Shannon Hoffman for um, putting on a great Mule Days and hosting a wonderful clinic. We're so grateful for Shannon. After that, I went to Tennessee and uh, went to that. Uh, ha- we had a clinic in conjunction with the Reese Brothers uh, Mule Sale there. And that was a good time. Um, it was it was super busy with the mule sale going on, um, but it was a good time, and there was a lot of lessons to be learned there. And and one of the lessons that I really wanted to talk about from from Tennessee was, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about that groundwork, um, but this is a little different take on it, is if you're working an animal that you're not sure about, that's a little touchy that's a little off, that's a little worried about you, that's a little nervous, you know, give yourself as much as as much of an advantage as you can, okay? And the groundwork is one way to give yourself an advantage. So the first day of class there in Tennessee, one of the one of the folks on, um, on her mule there uh, kind of took off on her and, and just kind of trotting slash loping and kind of made the bend at the fence and the lady looked at the fence and off she came. It was minor, really not a big deal. She got herself picked up and she was just fine, but it shook her a little bit. And we ended up just moving her to the groundwork class, which was really what she needed for sure. But I asked her, I said, did you do any groundwork before you got on this morning or anything? And and I always recommend before the mulemanship one class, you guys to do your groundwork, go in early do your groundwork, let your mule become familiar with the arena and with the setting and with the other animals. Let them check all that stuff out. Let them self-regulate and come down and get mentally prepared before you ride them. See, the groundwork is more so for the mind than the mechanics. Okay, I, I care more, more about getting the mind through the groundwork than getting the mechanics through the groundwork. That's more important to me. And so I was trying to tell this uh, this individual to you know give yourself an advantage on this stuff. You know when you when you come in here and you get to work like this, uh, do your groundwork, check this stuff out because that mule is so up. You know one thing we need to be better at all of us is really paying attention to the mule's expressions uh, when we're around them. Pay attention. So. If the mule's up and worried and all touchy, why are we getting on? I mean, unless you're game for it. Some some of you might be game for it and you can handle it. And that's just fine. I'm not saying that you shouldn't. Um, I'm just saying you need to pay attention and be prepared for whatever might come your way. And uh, to this individual, I was trying to say, hey, you know, give yourself the advantage. Do your groundwork. Get them settled and do the best you can. Because you're already, you know, don't have the advantage. I mean, these things... Most of these meals we're dealing with are, you know, you can just say approximately a thousand pounds. You know, that's the average 
uh, size of mule that we have in the clinics is about a thousand pounds, and um, you know they're they're big critters, they're big animals, and they can do a lot of damage. So, anyways, give yourself an advantage. Do the groundwork. Check them out. After Tennessee, uh, we went on to to Tropic Utah. And uh, family got to come to that one. That's just down the road from us. And this is this one is in conjunction with Bryce Canyon Mule Days. And talk about a good time. Oh, my gosh, yeah. If you haven't been to Bryce Canyon Mule Days, there's another Mule Days for you to go to. I got all these events that I highly recommend. You know, we got Bryce Canyon Mule Days, Mule Days at Leatherwood, you know, Boyd Ranch, Mule Days. I mean, all, all this stuff, you guys. We, we go to some fun places, and, and you need to come. Uh, but Bryce Canyon Mule Days, the highlight there was for sure the cow working class. We had a great cow working class. And, uh, you know, I was, I was hoping to get Sky on the podcast today. Um, I'm sitting here in the Freightliner studio, as I like to call it. And she's, uh, we just pulled up here in Spokane. So she's getting the, getting the trailer ready and getting the girls lined out. But anyways, highlight there for sure was Sky roping and... Uh, the participants, Lisa Taka and Mary Wareham um, and Sam Scaling, all those folks getting the ropes down and catching some catching some steers. Now, we don't always get to rope in the cow working class, um, but I love when there's at least one other person there that has the ability to rope because um, it makes it a lot of fun. And, and it's great exposure for, even if you don't rope, if... If a couple of us rope and we we uh, you know head and heal a, a steer or or a calf or a cow or whatever, um, the other participants kind of get a, they get to get down and doctor it and change the ropes and do all that stuff and so it was it was a, a really great experience you know and it's a it's fun for these people to rope and they had a great time but we got a lot done and the steers were were pretty fun to play with. And the cow working is just one of my favorite classes because you get to put practical use to the moves we're working on. See, most of the time we're working, you know, just doing the dry work, just doing the, the moves and trying to get it lined out and and uh, trying to teach the move. And it's just more of the mechanical side of things. But, you know, when you, uh, when you do the cow working, you get to use this stuff. And... I promise you, you're you're just not gonna get the same result doing dry work as you, as you get when you're actually working on something that your mule sees a reason. When you work cows, the mule sees a reason to turn around, and they see a reason to stop. They see a reason to get back, and it's just super valuable. So if you get a chance to to come to one of our cow working classes, um, you should do it. And we have. Our next cow working clinic is in Gunnison, Colorado, in uh, toward the end of June, and we may have we might have one one or two cow working spots there, I think, but uh, available. Um, but anyways, it, you know, you just you just don't get the same result doing the dry work as when you actually work the cow. It's it's really amazing to do that, and it was sure fun seeing those folks rope and have fun and, and have a good time. And uh, after the clinic there in Tropic, we went to, uh, I flew out to California. This guy and the girl stayed home from that one too. And 
Uh, I flew out to California there, uh, Dunnigan, California. We had a uh, our, our fifth year at the Running Eye Ranch. And Running Eye is pretty cool. It's this giant obstacle course. I mean, obstacles everywhere. And so the people that come, they love it because we do the classes. They get to go play out on the obstacles in the afternoons and, you know, in the evenings after after the clinic and whatever. So folks love it. But uh, we had a good time there and got a lot done. Um, it was it was really fun to see the people work hard. Uh, one of my favorite things there particularly was all the people that were early. They were in there early working and practicing, and it it made such a difference um, versus the folks that come in a little late. And I already mentioned being late. Don't do it. So a big shout out to those in California for being early, working hard. And I got to say, my highlight for the clinic in California wasn't so much uh, necessarily anything in class, but my buddy Mike Mache, him and his wife, Kelly, they, they host the clinic for me there and done again. But Mike took me shark fishing and uh, I actually caught a stingray. I, I caught like... I caught like four stingrays and, and one shark, actually. And uh, I have never been pulled on so hard as I was with this big old stingray. I don't even know how big it is. But it was funny. The first the first stingray I caught, Mike was like, oh, that's just a baby. And that thing was really pulling on me. And you got to take into account that the only thing I ever fish is for mountain trout in these small streams. So, you know... Uh, this first stingray feels pretty heavy to me, and I'm kind of fighting it a little bit. Mike's like, oh, that's just a baby. And I'm like, really? This is just a baby? Like, oh, my gosh, that really pulled on me. Well, I figured out why he was saying that, because the next stingray I hooked was absolutely massive, and my arms have never burnt so bad in my entire life. And and I didn't know uh, I didn't know if I was going to make it. It was it, They were so... I mean, I was so sore. And I told Mike after that, you know, I said, man, that stingray pulling on me was, uh, I mean, puts all the mules that drag me around in the arena to shame. I I will never think that a mule pulls on me hard again after trying to reel in that giant stingray. And it took me a little while to get that thing in. But uh, anyways, that was kind of the highlight there was being able to go out and do a little fishing. And I'm sure grateful for those opportunities. Um... And I know it's a little off subject when I talk about things like that sometimes, but, you know, it's one of the blessings that I need to make sure that I express that I'm grateful for is for all of you that do so much for me and my family outside of the clinics. You know, just the we're so blessed to be able to see things and go on adventures like that, and uh, I really enjoy it. It really makes me appreciate um, the opportunities that we have. And, and uh, I always find ways to relate it to relate it to to meals you know and and one of the things that i noticed um was mike was was just so tuned in to whenever anything would bite and he'd see that line and just see that the little teeny poles and knowing when to set the hook knowing when to reel when to let it go back out because some of those sharks he'd let it go back out a little bit or whatever and and knowing when to operate that the whole time I was thinking, man, this is so much just like working with the mules, knowing when to do what. And it's all so much about that feel. Um, 
we have to use that intuition and that feel and pay attention to those little tiny signals that our mules give us to know when to ask the next question or when to stop asking. Sometimes knowing when, well, I shouldn't say sometimes, almost all the time, knowing when to stop asking the question is more important than knowing when to ask the question, I think. You know, and, and it was just amazing how tuned in Mike was to, you know, in that experience. And I just thought, man, this is a great example for mulemanship. So I had to share for sure. Anyways, that's a little bit about the last few clinics we've been to. And uh, uh, I'll try to be better now uh, about, uh, you know, trying to do debriefs on each clinic. We just have been going, going, going. So that kind of brings me to the next part of our podcast, and that's our questions. So let's dive in here and talk about some of these questions we got. Let's check them out here. Okay, first question is from Ray Lockhart in Virginia. Hey, Ty, I love the podcast. So I've heard you mention how when there is a blow-up, and we think that it happened all of a sudden. But in reality, it's a release of tension that has built up from stress or worry over things that bother them. So could you help me understand what I should do when I see all those small indications of worry so they don't build up? That's a great question, Ray. I appreciate you sending it in. And what he's talking about right there is what we call trigger stacking. And this is so ridiculously common in our world it's scary okay it happens all the time so basically what we're talking about here is is you know you'll be riding your mule down the trail you see a little rock and they kind of do a little i call a little baby spook and then they see a stick and they do a little baby spook and they go a little further they see a stump they do a little baby spook well all along throughout this trail ride this tension is building and building and building and finally something sets them off and that's when the big thing happens the the big blow up happens and uh that's what really gets us so the key is is to is to help your mules learn how to self regulate and deescalate when they see these little triggers so it's it's not it's not just ignoring them when they have these little baby spooks but actually helping them come down self-regulate and realize that it's not it's not that scary and it takes some practice and it takes some effort to to do that but you know ray basically the answer to your question is let's just say you're going down the trail your mule spooks at that rock right there well instead of just kind of spurring them past it or kicking them past it or just making them get over it um sometimes it's a good idea just to stop right there and let them evaluate. You know, their eyes are one of their best tools for evaluation of a potential threat. Let them use it. I'm not saying that I let my mule look at everything necessarily. It's like letting your dog sniff everything as you're going to, you know, for a walk. That's, that's not a good habit to, to have, just letting your mule tune you out and, and look all around because I kind of want to be the eyes for my mule. But in that situation when they're kind of scared, I will practice that awareness and just let them evaluate a little bit. Sometimes uh, it's too touchy of a situation to just let them stop and relax and look at it and 
and de-escalate and self-regulate there. Sometimes I might have to just ride some circles around the rock. I might have to ride around it until the mule, through the movement, releases the tension. Sometimes they need the movement to release the tension. So I might ride around a little bit till I feel like everything is going good and then just ride off. No big deal. So those are a couple of things I would do, Ray, in that situation. Great question. Very important, too. Um, okay. Uh, this is from uh, Cynthia Alford. Uh, hello, Ty and Sky. My question is about training versus age. My husband recently told me that training isn't what makes a meal better behaved. It's just a matter of age and that the older they get, the better they act. What's your take on this? Um, so, my my experience. I don't really. Ha- I don't have an opinion on this. I have experience with this. So, my experience with this is that age doesn't mean a whole lot um, without the experience and without the training. Uh, the oldest mule I've ever started, I I call it colt starting, uh, was twenty three years old. Never never even been halter broke, 23 years old. And guess what? It was 23 years old and acted exactly like my typical two and two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds act. So it was 23 and acted just like a two-year-old. Um, you know, and I've had multiples of others in the teens that I've started that have never been touched. Multiples, you know, in, uh, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten that have never been touched. So age in my experience, doesn't have near as much to do with uh, with their behavior as does their experience and the work that they've had, the time they've had put into them. So um, that's my take. Thanks for the question, Cynthia. Um, all right. Uh, Ty. Uh, as usual, I appreciate and enjoy all the mule knowledge you share with us. My question is this. Let's say you're working with a mule on speed control and quality stops. Let's also assume that this mule is touchy and sensitive. If a person consistently works that mule in the round pen and gets that mule controlled and performing in a safe manner, will those movements hold true when outside the round pen environment? Or would you expect him to maybe default to some of his previous ways since he knows he is not in a confined space? I guess another way of asking the question is this. Would a person expect a mule to act differently when being rode in a different environment? The realm corral versus a trail. If the smell sights were all equal. Thanks in advance for the clarification. We appreciate you and Sky taking the time. Be blessed, Jason Coral. Good question, Jason. Uh, the answer is the mule needs the experience. Kind of like the last question I answered. Um, the mule needs the experience in these different situations. So, yeah, you, in, until you have a real consistent foundation, a real confident foundation, um, you are going to get different behaviors in different environments. Uh, so take my mules, for example. Um, I'm looking out the window right now. I have five mules with me. I got uh, Tina, who's 18 years old. I got Chrome, who's who's 22 or something like that. I got Cupcake. She's she's a seven-year-old. Riata's a seven-year-old. And I got Hannah, who's a four-year-old. And um, it's interesting. 
because the older ones that I just mentioned, they are very, very consistent now. I can, I mean, I was just in Oregon, you know, this morning. They're they're in Washington now. Ellie's just out there getting them brushed down, getting them ready to ride. And uh, I guarantee you, Ellie can get on these these older mules, and they're going to be exactly the same here, at this completely different environment as they just were in Oregon. And it'd be the same thing if we was out moving cows today, or if we was out on the trail today, or pulling a pack string into the mountains. Um, all that they'd be the same. Now take the colt for example, Hannah. She's a four year old. Um, she is, she is a little different. Uh, she gets real comfortable and settled in, and then we change places. And she gets a little, uh, a, a little into that sympathetic nervous system, a little bit more on the edge. Um, but that will change with experiences. So, Jason, the main thing is, do do the thing that you can have constant all the time, and that is working working on keeping your mule centered. Do your best to get that mule centered. Get the mule as handy as you can, as well broke as you can. Because that will be the consistent piece everywhere you go. That way it doesn't matter if you're in the round pen or out on the trail or in the, in the cow pasture or on the mountain, whatever. You need to be that constant thing. And having them handy is going to be uh, a constant thing. And then it's just experience you know, after that. So thanks for the question, Jason. I appreciate it. This question uh, is from Mary Wareham, and I actually mentioned uh, Mary. She did a little roping there in Tropic with us. So, Mary, thanks for the question. Her question is about alfalfa cubes. Uh, we want to start using them instead of hay on our, in our travels. How do you best estimate how much to feed them? Um, thank you. See you guys soon, and thank you for all the great education. Well, thanks, Mary. Appreciate the question and the, co- and the, the, the comments there. Um, Basically, with alfalfa cubes, we usually feed them one and a half to two percent of their body weight um, per day. So, just to make it easy, um, you know, a, a thousand pound mule is going to get about twenty, you know, fifteen to twenty pounds of hay cubes a day. So that's kind of how we figure that out. Um, keeps it pretty simple. Uh, for the most part, typically uh, to help you kind of sort that out, it's a like we feed most of our meals out of a five-gallon bucket, and I usually just fill up that five-gallon bucket halfway in the morning and then halfway at night, and that's usually just about right for them. And just watch it. If they're gaining a little too much weight, cut it back. If they're losing a little bit, add a little bit more. Um, depends on how much you're using them, too. If you're not using them near as much, don't feed them so many calories. Remember that alfalfa is high in calories, so you know, the, the, you know if you had Timothy, you know grass hay cubes, um, it's going to be a little different ratio there in in the pounds because uh, you're going to feed a lot more of the grass hay cubes than you are the alfalfa cubes because the calories are so much higher in the alfalfa. That's usually what gets people with feeding alfalfa is because. And I'm not just talking about cubes, but like hay. You know, the universal measurement for for hay is a flake of hay, you know. And uh, it, you just can't feed that way with alfalfa because it's so high in calories. That's usually where people get in trouble. They'll feed them. They'll just feed them a little much. So watch that. But we feed 1.5% to 2% of their body weight per day.
Okay, let's see here. Um, uh, next question um, comes from comes from uh, Lisa Whitney. Lisa Whitney up there in the northeast. Um, basically, she's she's wanting to know uh, how to help her mule. Um, be comfortable not just with her but in doing things with her um so i'm just kind of reading through this real quick here it's a little long so i'm just trying to get to the points um let me read i'll read a little bit of it here uh Waylon and i haven't done much all winter um but we travel once monthly to clinics and at some point he uh vetoed getting on the trailer he dropped his right shoulder and uh to, to leave and then kicked at her um now he's kind of pulling the same move uh when he's leading kind of just getting away from her um so she's trying to pay attention to that um so kind of going through these things sounds like he's just jerking away and he's trying to kick at her so so he's he's bolting away on the ground and he's kicking at her all right yeah that's kind of the idea sorry about that i should have i should have read through that a little bit more that was really long so okay yeah so so the mule her mule is wanting to when she's leading it or loading it in the trailer or even doing the groundwork Basically, he is dropping his shoulder, busting out to the side, and trying to take off. And he's also kicking at her in the process of that. What do you do about it? Well, Lisa, the main thing I'm going to do is I am going to work extensively, extensively uh, to, to be able to get some bend on that mule and be able to roll the hinds. Okay, that's the that's the critical part of all the work you're doing. So don't worry about... A whole lot of the other groundwork moves or any of the riding moves necessarily, except for rolling those hindquarters away from you. you got to get that really good. The other thing, though, more importantly, Lisa, to really make progress on this, you got to really practice your awareness. So before your mule gets troubled, before that he gets bothered and wants to take off, you need to just stop and just pause and get this mule to self-regulate. That's that's the key. Knowing when to stop. So as you see this mule escalating, he obviously can't handle the stress. He can't take that. Okay. He he his he's defaulting to the flight. And he's getting a little little of the fight on too. The kicking is a little bit of the the flight and the fight going on right there. And um, you don't want any of that stuff there. So you got to pay attention. When you see him start to get bothered, when he starts to rise in that anxiety, just take a pause for a second. Let him come down. You might wait for a few minutes um, for, for a breath, for blinking of the eyes. He might even lick his lips, uh, lowering his head, relaxing his body. He's not going to swish his tail. Um, notice those veins and those tendons and, and those things. Uh, relax a little bit. Um, but pay attention. That's going to be the real key in fixing this. Basically, your mule needs to learn some coping skills. 
He needs to learn to deal with the stress. He can't take it. So since you're not really practicing the awareness, that's what's pushing him over into fleeing the scene, into uh, retreating. That's what's kind of going on there. So practice that awareness. When you see him start to get bothered, take a breath, stop, pause for a minute, let him reset, and then go again. That's going to be way more valuable than you... Uh, then even really good timing of moving the feet and, and getting them to bend and roll in the hinds, like I said. Although that's the main move on the mechanical side that you need to get going. The main move for all of it, with just with uh, uh, just with awareness, is noticing when he gets stressed and, and coming down from that. So that's really what I'd focus on, Lisa. Thanks for the question. Okay, next question is from Tustin Lance. I'm not sure where Tustin's from. Hey guys, I rode my mule Jewel today, and she's been a spook case the entire time I was on her. Um, I'm not sure how to go about fixing the issue without turning it into a rodeo. On the ground, she has very little issues, but I haven't done anything with the tarp work or anything of that nature with her yet. As soon as I'm on her and a tie string on my saddle blows in the wind, she gets extremely tense. And if I move, she starts hopping like she wants to buck around. She's, she's not sure. Uh, I rode her around uh, with her doing this for probably a half hour. Every time I moved in the saddle to turn her or anything today, she was ready to turn inside out as if she was provoked uh, by anything at all. I'd prefer not to ride it out if there's another option. <laughs> I laugh out loud. The only thing different today is it was a bit windy, but she's got to be rideable in the wind, of course. Thanks for all the great information. All right, Tustin. You know, kind of what I was just saying to Lisa is going to apply to your situation too. Your mule, instead of just going right into the to the defense of a flight or fight, she she's got to be able to have some coping skills, and if she gets a little scared, be able to come down. Now you can do some of this by going back some of your flag work, doing a little flag work on the ground, uh, kind of get to where you can wave your flag while you're doing your groundwork while she's moving. A lot of people will quote, desensitize while the mule's tied up or while they're standing still or whatever. That's not good enough. And I don't really want my mule totally desensitized because usually when you've worked them that far, they've mostly shut down and frozen up. I want my mule familiar. So you you got to do a little work uh, while they're moving too. So say you're on the ground and working on a circle, Wave your flag a little bit, and if they get bothered, back off right there and let them come down and settle. Now, this is going to ruffle feathers from the from the old rednecks for sure, um, because they're going to say, "Well, you know, you can't quit like that." They're going to learn, you know, they're going to learn to to spook if you do it like that. Well, yeah, they're right if you quit for the day, but what I do is I'll come in there, I'll cause a little confusion with that flag maybe the mule gets up gets a little bothered by it i'm going to pause right there i'm going to let the mule completely come down relax and reset and i'm just going to stand there and watch them and after they've reset and this might take you 30 seconds it might take you three or four or five minutes i don't really know but then i'm going to go again and i'm going to do the same thing i'm going to get that flag in there and as soon as that mule gets a little bothered by it i'm going to back off and you'll notice after four or five rounds of this that that mule is going to get over that flag really quick because you're showing them that you're aware, you're practicing that awareness, you're also letting them 
self-regulate and come down off of that. You're not just holding them at that high stress level. It's kind of like the trigger stacking, the question I answered from Ray Lockhart a little earlier in the show. So letting the meal come down from that is going to be a, a key deal for sure. And, uh, you know, won't take you long, just a few times, and before you know it, it'll be no big deal. So that's how I'd handle it. A little flag work on the ground while they move. you got to do it while they're moving, not just while they're standing still. So, all right. Um, next question comes from Scott Roberts. Scott was just in my clinic in John Day. Hello, Ty. I don't get a lot of opportunities to lope my mule in an arena. So when I do, the problem I tend to encounter is that she'll get the right lead going one direction, but struggles going the other direction. How can I help her pick up the right lead? And I think he means correct lead. Uh, actually, this should have been my first question. How do I keep her in a lope in the arena? It seems like it's so much easier on an open straight road. He says, and Scott says, P.S. After being in a second clinic, I think a lot of other things really started to click. Scott Roberts. Thank you, Scott. And it was good to see you last weekend for sure. Appreciate you coming up there to John Day, Oregon. And Scott's from Boise, Idaho. Uh, so, Scott, um, the, to answer the first question about how to keep the mule in the, in the lope in the, in the arena. Yes, you're right. It does seem more challenging than outside. This that's because everything in the arena is a selfish endeavor, you guys. When you're working in the arena, it is completely selfish. It's just for you. And the only thing the mule is going to get out of it is what you give them. There's no natural draw, no natural drive. But when you're out in the mountains, you're out on the trail, there's a little bit of a natural draw. See, these animals are naturally travelers. They're used to traveling. It's in their instinct to travel far and wide uh, day after day. That's That's normal for them. Uh, they want to travel. So if you can kind of, you know, find the opportunities like that to work on the lope or something when when they're when they're out and about, it's going to be way easier for you for sure to pick up a lope out on the trail than it's going to be in the arena. Absolutely. Also, typically, most of you, depending on where you are in the world, we have people listening all over the world, but a lot of trails here, particularly in the U.S., are a lot of times wooded or there's brush or rocks on the side. So it's fairly easy to let the mule just stay on the trail. Now, it's a little different if you're riding cross country or something like that. But here, most of the places I go in the U.S., it's, you know, the trail's a trail and, and the mules kind of get trail broke. So keeping them on the trail is no big deal. Therefore, you're not so worried about trying to steer the animal. Now, in the arena... You're trying to steer them. You're trying to keep them on a rail or something or whatever. You're trying to steer them and you're trying to drive them. It's so much more challenging to teach one to lope in the arena than it is outside. Absolutely. So to teach one to lope, you got to teach it to trot. And to teach it to trot, you got to teach it to walk. And when I'm first starting a colt, I don't want to have to hold them in the walk. I don't want to have to hold them in a trot and I don't want to have to hold them in the lope. I don't want to have to babysit the animal in the speed. So the key is to help them learn to stay at that speed until you ask otherwise. So to do that when I'm starting a colt, the first thing I do is just teach them to walk. So I might have to come in there with my legs, I might have to bump a little bit, I kind of roll forward in my seat, roll forward on my seat bones, add a little leg, bump, 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 bump. They take a step, I stop bumping. 
they might instantly stop walking the second I stop bumping. So once they stop, I'll bump again. Now, what I'm not going to do is kick them or bump them with my legs when they're just slowing down. I'm going to let them fail all the way. So as long as they're walking, even if it's the slowest walk you can imagine, I am not going to touch them. I'm going to let them just walk. This will help you so you don't have to babysit these darn animals, okay? You'll be able to just ask the speed, they'll keep it. Now, after I develop that walk to where I can get them to walk, and they'll keep walking until I tell them otherwise, then I'm going to work on the trot. I do the same thing at the trot. I ask them to trot, and as long as they're trotting, I'm not going to bump them again with my leg. I just keep my seat position to continue asking for the speed that I want. So I maintain the seat position, but I don't keep bumping. Now, I let the mule fall all the way down. They can trot as slow as they want, but as soon as they break into the walk, I'm going to come in there, I'm going to bump them with my legs, get them back into the trot. So you let them fail again. So this letting them fail is, is crucial. Now, the same thing at the lope. When I start to working with these colts and getting them to hold the lope, I, I do what I need to do to get them to lope. I might have to bump them. I might have to drive them quite a bit. I finally get them to lope. And as long as they're loping, I'm going to absolutely leave them alone. Just maintain seat position is all. And my intention, I'm thinking about loping. I'm thinking about where I want the mule to go, of course. And I will let that mule lope as slow as it wants. But as soon as it breaks to the trot, I'm going to drive it again. So basically, that's all I do. Now, I really, in that in that moment... Of course, we're probably in the round pen with the colt. I don't really care about where they go. Um, doesn't really matter where they go. Uh, don't worry about the steering. Just worry about the movement. So that's kind of how I, I build that, Scott. And then, to answer your question, after you've taught them how to, to maintain the lope or keep a lope, uh, to ask for the correct lead, this is basically all I do. Okay, To ask for the correct lead, let's say I want the left lead. To pick up a left lead... I'm going to get my right leg back in third gear. That's near the rear cinch. I'm going to have my left leg in second gear. That's near the middle of the mule. You're just, your leg's hanging down. And I'm going to tip the nose to the left. My outside rein is going to be loose, which is my right rein. Right, right rein is loose. Left rein is tipping the nose. And that's how I'm going to ask for a left lead. If I want the right lead, do the same thing, just opposite sides, of course. So that's how I'm going to ask for a lead. Now, if your mule has a hard time picking up the lead, there are a million different little tricks and ways to get them to pick up a correct lead. My favorite is just to long trot on the diagonal you want to pick up. So a long trot, if I'm trying to get a left lead, I'll make lots of left turns long trotting at that high extended trot, you know, lots of lefts, lots of lefts, lots of lefts, and then ask them to tip over into the lope. Thanks for the question, Scott. I sure appreciate it. Okay, next question comes from Jamie Mitchell. Hello again, Ty. I hope you and the family are doing well. My question is, will a mule that is very scared of people usually get over that throughout the training process, or do you suggest adding additional exercises to help them with this? My challenging mule has been improving with the groundwork checklist. He is generally fine with me but I have to pay very close attention to read his expressions and respond accordingly because of this. I do not have trouble with him. However, if anyone else gets near him, much less handles him, he is extremely nervous and tense. I still have a lot of work ahead of me 
to continue through the checklist, but wanted to know your experiences and advice with mules that have trust issues with humans. Thank you for everything you do. I am almost caught up on every podcast, finally. Jamie Mitchell. P.S. Are your subscription emails monthly or weekly? I don't think I'm receiving them, even in my spam folder. Yeah, Jamie, that's because I have been behind on my emails. Uh, and they're usually monthly, so sorry. I've been behind on the emails and the podcast the last few weeks. So, good question, Jamie. Uh, what's going on here is your mule is just familiar with you. So, it's just like they get comfortable with where they live, with your facility, with your place, with your barn, with your pastures, your paddocks, your corrals, your arena, your round pen. They get familiar. They get comfortable. They get routine. Um so this is normal. This happens a lot. My suggestion to you is every time you have anybody come visit your house, maybe you invite your family over for dinner, your friends over for dinner or a barbecue or a get-together, take them all out to see the mules. Have them, have them pet the mule if they can or just be near the mule. Let them get experience. Anytime you can, if you can haul the mule to... Um, any type of event going on, maybe there's a rodeo going on this week down the road, maybe there's a bell race, a team roping, a cutting, um, whatever, a trail ride, go get your mule exposed. Get them out and around that stuff. That's going to be a big part of it. But above all else, you need to get that mule uh, to be able to self-regulate and get some coping skills. It's like we've been talking about. So just going through the mechanics of it, you know, that may get them centered physically, but you need to also work on getting them centered mentally. That's a big part of it. So you got to work on those coping skills. Push the mule out of its comfort zone when it's with you. You know, it's it's pretty common if you're working with a nervous mule to tiptoe around their nervousness. That hap- A lot of people do it. Now, you don't want to fall into that category. You don't want to be that person that tips and, and tippy-toes around their, their little nervous mule. It's okay to get the mule a little stressed, have a little anxiety, and then let them back off of that. Let them come down. Let them self-regulate off of that. So make sure your sessions have that up and down rhythm to it. You don't want to have just a flat, uh, non-dramatic session, although you might enjoy that. It might be peaceful to you. Just know that there's no improvement or learning being made by your mule. you got to push and, and stretch the rubber band a little bit. So that's very critical there. So that's all I do, Jamie, and you'll see a big uh, a big change in that for sure. Okay, uh, next question. Hey, Ty, I'm trying to figure out how to help Pete with his bouts of seemingly random anxiety. I've had him nearly 10 years, and much of the time, I have had just him and my mare on a property together. Sometimes other equine were on the properties, but they were all in other pens too. Due to different dietary needs, I have to keep my two separated a majority of the time. I try to give them together time several days a week. The last year, my mare has been getting free choice hay, and I like to switch their pens twice a day for Pete to clean up what she couldn't eat. We moved them to our new home in mid-March. We moved them to our new home in mid-March and started back to this routine. We had moved a few times over the years, and I take him places overnight on occasion so being in a new place is not foreign to him pete will get very anxious and keyed up in the smaller of the two pens Uh, sometimes he will find he will be fine all day sometimes 
fine for several hours, sometimes anxious immediately, sometimes even when I leave my mare in there with him, um, he paces the fence between the corrals. Um, so basically she goes on about how the mule gets worried. Um, I can't figure out what is causing him to get so unsettled and worked up. I don't think there are any predators around. Um, my vet doesn't think it's diet related. Um, it's not entirely out of character for him to have times of being uncentered like this. But historically, has not been at home unless I take my mare away, and not so frequently. Kate, mostly, I think your old Pete there is just wanting to herd up. It's their instinct to gather the herd all the time to make a herd. And, you know, going to new places, moving like this, it changes things a little bit at times, but they should be able to settle in. Uh, Pete is just, this is all just, just herd-bound behavior, and he's just not uh, being able to maintain these coping skills to stay centered. That's all it really is. And centered doesn't just mean when he's with you, but centered mentally when you're not there too. It seems like that's kind of the theme of this podcast is getting your mule right in the mind. And that's all I do. So as you work, Kate, work to get him comfortable. And then uh, he just needs experience. So practice taking your mare out, leaving Pete behind, letting him get little, just little times uh, and experiences of you leaving him on his own. Also take Pete out and have him leave the horse and get some experience there. Do good work to get him feeling good, to give him these little dopamine hits as you ride, help him get feeling comfortable being with you. That's really all I do. I don't have any magic or or big tricks for you uh, when it comes to just being able to handle the separation like that and the splitting up. Now, we know for sure they are healthier mentally and physically when they are with a herd. That's that's proven a million times over, a million different experiments, a million different research segments for sure. We, We know they do better as a herd. So, you know, the obvious answer is, you know, don't split them up um, just in their daily lives. Uh, they'll be more comfortable. It, it might seem contradictory to you. Uh, you'll think, well, geez, if they're together all the time, wouldn't it be harder for them to separate? Actually, no, because they'll be more self-regulated. They'll be healthier throughout their their just their day, and, and they'll be able to cope with this better uh, from a physical and a mental aspect. So... Um, I know you got to feed them a little different, but you know, if you can't put them together, then, you know, just know that's kind of probably going to maintain that there's not a lot of change that's going to be made. Um, I don't think in this behavior besides just getting him more familiar, more practice, doing it more often, having him split up more often. So I don't think I can give you a lot of help there, Kate. Sorry about that, but hopefully that makes some sense to you. Um, Anyways, that's about it for the questions. This has been a uh, it's been fun to get back on here. It's been a little while. I apologize for the for the extended period of time of no shows. We'll get back to our routine now and keep things coming for you. I got some good guests in the works um, to meet up with, so I appreciate you guys listening. Um, as always, if it's not too much to ask, I would so much appreciate you if you would share this podcast. If you do any type of social media. You can hit the share button on this and copy the link and post it on your social media. Um, If you would be so kind as to leave a review, let me know what you think of the show. 
I would absolutely love to hear from you. And if you have a question that you'd like to have answered on our show, on our show, excuse me, uh, you can send me an email. My email is ty at tsmules.com. That's ty at tsmules.com. And of course, you can always uh, find the videos, find the podcasts, find uh, articles, uh, and visit our store, buy your halters, and uh, check out our clinics on our website. Go to tsmules.com for that. And uh, anyways, I hope to see some of you at a clinic soon, some of you at a clinic later. Um, we're mostly here in the Intermountain West for the rest of the summer. But we head to the East Coast this fall. Can't wait to see all, all of you out there. So anyways, until then, uh, you guys, until next time, God bless you. And we'll see you down the road.